Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. So, hey, Michael, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? Doing great. So, Michael, could you go ahead and give us kind of a short bio and some of the things you're interested in? Yeah, sure. I'm Michael Gibson. I'm co-founder and general partner at the 1517 Fund. We are a early stage fund that backs outsiders. So people uh, who are doing something they shouldn't be doing in the eyes of some authority. <clears throat> and most of the time that means, you know, our founders we back, they don't have degrees uh, or, you know, maybe they're pursuing some line of scientific research that, you know, the normal grant-making academic institutions might not want to, uh, want to back that early. So early stage, early stage tech companies, um, you know, my, myself am, uh, am doing something I should not be doing. I'm not trained in, <laughs> in finance. Um, my background goes back. I thought I'd become a professor of philosophy. Um, and then I, uh, I dropped out of that PhD program and, and, uh, was a journalist for a short time, uh, through a series of unlikely events, I, I wound up, uh, in Silicon Valley in 2015, Danielle Strachman, my co-founder and I, we launched 1517. Awesome. Well, it seems like you've made a really good, you know, it's quite a left turn to go from academia to, um, VC, but I think you've made. I think you'll make a much bigger impact. Now that you came, not that you could make an impact in philosophy, but it seems like academic <laughs> philosophy is quite a. I know. I, I like to. Uh, I think of a hypothetical, uh, like what is it, counterfactual, where yeah. let's say I did become a professor, and in the best case scenario, let's say I was a professor at Harvard, in over I don't know twenty thirty year career, I could advise undergraduates on their senior thesis. I might. Uh, advise a few grad students on their dissertations. And if I add up that pile of scholarship and then I compare it to, you know, the, the eccentrics and, <laughs> that I work with and the younger people, I, I, I think, yeah, what they've done on this side is, is quite compelling. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe this scholarship might, would have, uh, it'd be collecting uh, dust in some library somewhere. <laughs> maybe that's too harsh though. <laughs> don't say but, awesome. but in a sense i'm still somewhat professorial it's interesting is like uh because i work with a lot of university age entrepreneurs um and danielle and i run uh tutorial style meetings it, it feels a lot like we're uh we're running like the school for the x-men where That's we excellent. go out and we find the mutants out there and uh you know i still have my hair i'm not bald like professor x but <laughs> He went to Oxford and I did too. So there you go. I love that. <laughs> we got that in common. That, that is a great framing. I love that. <laughs> um, so my first question, uh, on some level, you know, the world is getting better. There's like the enlightenment now. We have less infant mortality, you know, there's less extreme poverty. But on another level, you know, I go out into, you know, out of the metro pools and I drive out to the country and it's like bombed out buildings and, and bombed out people. Right. And and, and so I, and I started to question that narrative, right? Like not everything is getting better. And, um, you know, what do you think about that? Uh, where do you think we are right now? And, you know, are these, some of these problems fixable? It's a great point. Um, 
I mean, it's something to keep in mind is that, you know, there's a rate to progress and, and the rate could be faster and slower. So, um, and then we're thinking if you look over like a century's worth of time, then you start to see differences. So I don't want to deny that we've made progress since 1971 or so, but I think it's come much more slowly in sectors of the economy outside of communications and, and IT. So sure, yes, we're talking on Zoom. Uh, people just as associate the word tech and technology with things they can do with their smartphone. But in, a, in an earlier era, technology just applied to anything, you know, doing anything better, faster, cheaper, higher quality, um, you know, you name it along those dimensions in any industry. Um, so where have we not seen progress? Well, I mean, look at things like education. Uh, we've been spending more and more dollars per student per year, and we seem to be getting the same or less for it. So and by that, I mean, as you look at college, it's gone up something like four to five X in real terms since uh, late 70s. If I take an English seminar and discuss poetry at some bucolic liberal arts school in New England, I, I can't say that's much better in terms of quality than it used to be, let's say, in 1975. That discussion is probably, you know, it's rich, maybe even profound, but not like four times profound. Right, exactly. <laughs> to be, right. So, so we're not making progress there. And then if you look at the, you break down the demographics and, and geographical locations that you referred to, and it looks like, sure enough, yeah, some populations are not thriving, not making improvements as, as they were in the past. Um, you know, median wages uh, have stagnated, especially for men, uh, you know, people with only college, uh, sorry, with high school degrees, meaning, you know, maybe lower skilled labor. They've had a really hard time uh, in the last 40 years. And we can debate the causes of that. It could be globalization opening up, uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. economy to uh, Japanese cars, to now Chinese manufacturing and so on. And then it could also be some automation. Um, but yeah, there are regions of America that, that have suffered the Rust Belt uh, and Appalachia and places like that. They, they have not seen, they have not shared in the gains that other areas have. Uh, so, so that's concerning. You know, I, I, there's a great website out there called, uh, I think it's just WTF happened in 1971. And it's a fantastic uh, repository of data on all these kinds of uh, different cuts on this question, because something happened in the early 70s, where uh, the, these numbers started changing, the median wages, the explosion in, in cost, in healthcare, in higher education, um, the <clears throat> lower life expectancy for, for some populations as, as the opioid crisis swept through uh, in the last you know, 15, 20 years. So if anyone's listening, go to you know, WTF happened in 1971 and you'll get a lot of data um, so it's interesting for, I, I think, to think about, yeah, what happened and what can we do differently? It is remarkable to me. My, uh, my mom was raised by her grandmother. And if I think about her life, my grand, my, she'd be my great uh, grandmother, her life. She was born, I think, yeah, it was the 1880s in wow. Texas. She lived in a copper mining town in Arizona. So she was born in an era where there was no radio. There were no cars. Uh, there were no uh, 
airplanes, no jets, no television, no skyscrapers at first. Oh, man. Um, and then she died in 1980. And if you think about the amount that happened in that time, like she lived to see someone on the moon. Yeah. So if you think of that as a, as a lifetime, and then you look at the other data points about median wages and stuff, and you see that they, they would typically quadruple in, in that amount of time so that, you know, the average worker with not much many skills was making four times what they were right. uh, 100 years earlier with all these other quality of life improvements. And, and that is staggering. Um, and that's a real shift in, in terms of progress. One, one of the economists' favorite statistics on, on progress, uh, technological progress, is something called total, total factor productivity, yeah. meaning, you know, based on these inputs, how, how, how much more of an output do you get? Uh, it's a tough, rough measure. Um, but yeah, if you look from like 1900 to 1970, you're seeing this steady up and to the right increase. And then something happens and it's still increasing, but nowhere near at the same clip, something like 20% compared to like the 4X. Um, so something happened. I've been thinking a lot about how, how, to, how to change that. I mean, we, you could talk about certain institutions like higher education that could be reformed. We could talk law and policy about regulations and how we might free people up. There's a lot of different ways to address it, but it, it, it's a big problem. Yeah, I think it's a it's a huge problem. Like you said, it seems like essential goods have just been getting more and more expensive. Wages have been fairly stagnant. So I remember early on the pandemic, I was playing this, you know, I, I never really played video games that much, but I had some time because, you know, we're all locked inside, can't go out. And I'm playing this new video game. It's like Red Dead Redemption. And it's amazing. It's like this, you know, I love <laughs> Westerns. And it's like the real, it's, this is the, it's the most amazing experience you've ever seen. And then, then I got like, I opened some mail right after I'd finished it. And I had done a virtual primary care visit with a, with a, a physician's assistant. And yeah. it cost, um, it was $500. And I have pretty good insurance and it was 500 bucks, wow. you know? And I was like, wait, this was a 30 minute visit with someone, you know, it's not even a physician. And I was like, man, this is so wild, right? You know, you're sitting here, this game, it's amazing. These, these are screens, <laughs> they're so great, you know, and we've had technological progress, but this office visit, it costs so much in real terms more than it yeah. used to. Um, it, it's gotten, it, it, it seems like a very real problem. This is why people, I think they feel worse off because, you know, essential goods cost more. Yep. Um, yeah, that's a great contrast. Uh, <laughs> The uh, Bureau of, of Labor uh, Statistics puts out a, a report of, uh, you know, inflation and tracking these types of goods. Yeah. And there are some graphs out there um, where the, the, the ones where the cost has been skyrocketing are yeah. things like healthcare, uh, education, um, the things where it's, you see deflationary forces. So they're getting cheaper and better are the things uh, that government doesn't touch at all. So that's one of the things I'll, I'll note about these things is like anything where the cost is going up and to the right uh, tend to be heavily regulated, subsidized, you know, complicated economic business model. Right. Uh, where, you know, you have different payers for different things. And then the things that are getting cheaper, better, faster, lighter uh, are the types of things, yeah, that private companies are able to, to, to compete against each other and, and, and improve performance on. So um, I, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, 
it's again touching on it's like the what which is yeah there's stagnation in different sectors of the society but then there's the why and and uh, yeah I, my my inclinations are like oh let's look at the regulations or you know what what what's different about the the time eras and maybe if we look at the institutions how they used to be um maybe we can make some progress but but maybe that's debatable i don't know but yeah interesting definitely is it something like I've got this thought that maybe, so we had these New Deal, this entire government infrastructure was built during the New Deal and all the smartest people went to Washington and you know, they founded these new institutions. And it's just been this long run trend where there, it's just entropic and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And in 1971, maybe most of the original people are completely gone. And it just, I don't know, this general yeah. degradation. I think, I think that's right. There's something, uh, you know, the, was it Ronald Reagan who said like the government is always the enemy or, you know, did never call the government. I forget. <laughs> he has some phrase. And, and I think that's the typical sort of libertarian reflex. Um, but what I think is probably more true with, with a little more nuance is that every institution, whether it's a private company or a nonprofit or a government body, they tend to have a life cycle. And when things start out, there's a little more energy, there's more degrees of freedom for creativity, but over time, the people within those institutions harden, the rules get set in place, the vested interests, uh, you know, their, their hold on the power cements, and, uh, and, and the, therefore by the end, it's not nearly as productive as it used to be. And I think, and I think that's true of government programs. So if you look at NASA, I think is a good one where, you know, the excitement of the space race drew a lot of the great minds of the era, you know, from engineers to pilots and so on to, to work on that. Um, but by the mid seventies, when, when the cold war fight over space was over, um, you know, the, the, the bureaucratic sclerosis had set in and, and NASA started to, and it, maybe their budget was tightened some, but it was also the case that, yeah, now these people who were established higher up in the hierarchy. Uh, originally they had been hired for competence, but now they're just there because they're in power and, and you get all these, uh, you know, things are done because it pleases the chain of command rather than because it's good or, or you know, all these sorts of problems that creep into <laughs> bureaucracies. So that, that happens in, in, in government programs. And, and so if, if, you know, I bet if we started something today and dumped a bunch of money into it, maybe it'd, it'd be pretty, pretty good and competent for the first 10 years, but then that corruption would sort of bake in. And then that life cycle from birth to flowering to old age, um, I think it happens faster in, in government bodies. And then they become zombies that just live forever. Um, you can't get rid of whereas private companies, it happens and then they go out of business uh, because right. someone, someone else replaces them. Uh, so I think that lingering zombie period is, is problematic. Definitely. Hey, you wrote something recently, and I thought this is this is perfect. And I, I'm just going to repeat it. It's, the pandemic sure. blew through our Maginot line and has exposed the feeble state of our science. We don't have testing at scale. The FDA, the CDC, and the WHO are bureaucratic, feckless, and unreliable. And we lack the treatments and vaccines. And you go on. Um, I, I think this is a perfect summation of what has happened. It, it was clear. It was clear to me at least that things weren't working very well, but 
no mm-hmm. one, there's no illusion anymore. Um, there's a recent 60 minutes segment where they had brought in a plane load of cruise ship passengers. They're all elderly. They all had COVID. They're all like falling over. They had COVID. Wow. And, you know, they're, they're about to die. And this was early on in the pandemic. And the CDC let them walk into the Atlanta airport, which is the largest airport. Oh, in the US, wow. And just walk straight. And you know, all these elderly people are like, man, I don't think this yeah. is a good idea. You know, this nurse <laughs> is like, wow, maybe we should, should be doing this, but they let us through and they're the experts. Um, What's to be done? I mean, like the level of incompetence, you know, a lot of people complained about Trump's response, but I mean, it's yeah. every level of the government just right. completely failed. God, you go back to the news stories in January and February last year, where you could pull up 50 to 100 news stories from different you know, outlets, prestigious, not prestigious where they're, the headline is, don't worry, it's the flu, or don't worry, right. it's all fine. Wear a mask, don't wear a mask. You had you had government officials lying directly to us. You know. yes. <laughs> it was so absurd. Uh, and so, therefore, I think we've lost a lot of trust in these institutions, which is sad, and, and it's tied to that level of competence. Um, for me, I, I, I've been in some debates, even with my mom on this, because... There are some miraculous things that we should be grateful for, but I, I, I'm so uh, I, I'm grateful. But on the other hand, I, I still feel frustrated. So take, for example, Moderna. Yeah. Uh, and the, the miraculous thing is that the lead re- researcher on the vaccine received by email the genomic sequence of the, the virus. Um, and then based on that, within three days, he had devised the vaccine. That's incredible. He yeah, didn't even awesome. have a copy. He didn't even have a, a, the virus present. He just had the information about the virus. Amazing. And based on that, he was able to devise a vaccine. And then, uh, you know, Trump, I think, to his credit, uh, worked with the FDA to loosen up the rules. Operation Warp Speed poured a ton of money into this. Uh, and then if not Operation Warp Speed, even the promise that the government would buy billions of dollars worth was certainly incentive enough. And, and so it took about what a year, um, even let, you know, 10 months, 11 months, and then the, those vaccines are out. So I want to acknowledge that, okay, that's pretty good compared, especially relative to the past where right. you might look at other vaccines and it took sometimes seven to 10 years to, to bring them uh, to market. But I still get frustrated because I, I, I go back to the guy getting the, uh, the blueprint for the vaccine in three days and take the FDA and, and the rest of academia and any authority, the gold standard in testing now is the double-blind randomized controlled trial. Um, you know, this is where you take two groups. Uh, some people don't know they're receiving the treatment. Uh, other people receive the treatment. You pay attention to them over some period of time. Uh, you're looking for efficacy. You're looking for safety. Uh, and these things take time. And that's the gold standard for figuring right. out whether or not a, uh, a therapeutic works or a vaccine. But uh, an alternative that other people have, you know, many people, economists and, uh, and even uh, people in healthcare have thought about is something called the human challenge trial. And what that is, is you directly expose someone to the, the, uh, the harm after receiving the treatment. So in, in the case of COVID-19, it would be, uh, you know, day four after this guy invents Moderna, yeah. someone takes the vaccine and then, you know, they deliberately expose that person to COVID-19. 
And we'd know pretty quickly if it worked for that person, right? And if it worked, then you try it on the next person. And then, you know, you could get volunteers, people could, uh, you know, consenting adults could say, okay, we don't know how dangerous this vaccine is, but you know what, I'm willing to, to try it out. And so we could have been getting results as early as, as last February and March. Um, and based on those initial results, you can expand from there. I like to compare it to, it's like if you were testing a parachute, you don't give it to someone and then let them walk around the city and do whatever they do. And then, you know, if they happen to jump out of an airplane, then we know if it works. Right. It's like, no, you, you have to test that. <laughs> Push them out the plane. Yeah, there's only, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's got to be tested in those conditions. Right. And because humans, I mean, I think adults have the power to consent to do these things. I, 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 I give the benefit of the doubt for those people to make those decisions for themselves. We could have obtained that information even faster. So right. uh, as, as miraculous as it is that it took a year, I think it'd be, it would have been fascinating to see how much faster it could have been with those human challenge trials. It looks like England is starting to experiment with the human challenge trials. Uh, so that'll be an interesting thing to pay attention to. But, uh, but yeah, so th- this, that's just another example. And then, and then the responses, I mean, as good as, and, and the development of the vaccines were by private companies funded by the government uh, in this one-time push. Um, but anything that was just solely the government was, was horrendous. Yeah, the CDC, well, the WHO, the international body. I, I don't know if you ever saw that video way back of the official... He would, uh, he would not acknowledge that Taiwan was, was a country. So he was clearly in the pocket of the, of the Chinese member. Oh, yes. I remember that. I remember that. That's yeah. great. Which um, country are you saying I, that's doing so good with COVID? I, I I'd never heard of them. I don't think they exist. The CDC, the, yeah, um, the FDA was, was off on, on the testing. In the beginning, the testing was so bad because the FDA required that only one test could be used. People weren't free to devise their own. Um, so yeah, I, I, the response could have just been, we could have adapted much more rapidly had not these uh, these bureaucratic institutions slowed us down. And, and it's sad because it costs lives. Definitely. It, it seems, yeah, it, 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 it's something, it makes me really mad at the end of the day. But um, yeah. so p- potential pass forward, um, one solution I've thought about, and I, I don't know if you have any, in North Carolina, this is actually accidental how this happened, but yeah. in my hometown, it's about 90 miles east of the capital, and yeah. you know they wanted new jobs. And so the state senator goes up, he lobbies, and he moves the DMV from Raleigh to Rocky Mountain. Okay. And, like essentially, most of the bureaucrats quit, and you can actually refound the institution. And wow. So we've got like app based, you can like update your driver's license and do all this stuff. It's all, no way. it's pretty awesome. Is that like a feasible approach? Do you have any ideas how to improve these like massive bureaucracies that are just mm. don't work anymore? Well, that, that, that touches on a good way to do it, which is you need to start over sometimes. Yeah. Uh, the, there's an old economist, uh, man, Carol Olson, who, oh, yeah. uh, his specialty was collective action problems, political economy. He wrote a book called The Rise and Decline of Nations. And what he looked at was how he, he, war had decimated Japan and, and Germany, World War II, uh, to the point where they had to start over. 
And so when the after after the dust had settled and, and the U.S. had decided to to keep the peace, uh, the German economy and the Japanese economy just did phenomenally well. They grew like weeds uh, from 1950 to call it 1970. Um, and so the question was what Mankir Olson looked into. He, he he was wondering why was that the case, and and his theory was something like you described with the DMV, which was that all the accumulating venture, vested interests who had blocked innovation or anything new, new entry, uh, after the war, they were all gone. And so, uh, the, in effect, they got to reboot and some of these, and some of these new companies and institutions, they have a, a, a energy and life force to them at the beginning that, as I said, fades with time. And so I, you know, his theory was that that's what, what, uh, accelerated their growth. And then the life cycle continued to the point where you started to get the sclerosis and and uh and that set in so yeah what do you do well i if you think of government like a like an industry similar to any other you can say okay well what drives innovation in in any industry and there are you know two main elements possibly three but the two would be you need you need new entry meaning someone can try to offer the same service for a, a different way or cheaper better um and then you need uh, you need experimentation. So I mean, maybe experimentation comes first. You experiment, you try it, and then you know the new firm launches a new product. Um, but without that, you're not going to see many improvements because it's going to have to depend on people within the organization uh, making complaints and then making adjustments. And it's just think about how hard it would have been for Sergey Brin and Larry Page to persuade the people at Microsoft to adopt their search engine, right? I mean, right. So they were hired as, as you know, entry-level engineers and they had this wonderful idea at night. And now they've got to pitch it to their boss who pitches it to his boss, who pitches it to that guy's boss and finally <laughs> gets to Gates and Gates is like, oh, I don't know. You know, that's that's that might drive some change, but it's just really hard. Whereas if you can leave, exit and start your own thing, experiment, try it out, uh, that that drives innovation forward, um, and so when it comes to government, if they're, I mean, it's hard. Some things just require a monopoly based on the provision of that public good. It could be, you know, law enforcement. Um, it makes it hard to have new entries. So, so how do you try to find competitive pressures to improve these services? It's hard to say. I would, uh, you know, the DMV is a, a good example. Where is, is that something that could be privatized? I wonder. Right. So no, no. Did, yeah. does that look like charter cities, seasteading? Well, I yeah. So to get yeah to bring it to the widest scale, right? Uh, I think I think the fact there's this frontier thesis in history that um, in in order to try new forms of government, you need to you need new entry and you need experimentation. But. In the yeah, in the past, there were places you could do that. You could right. go west. You could <laughs> go west, young man, and, and try something out. And, and the Mormons did, and, and the gold miners did, and, and and so on down the line. Um, but but nowadays, all the land is gone. I, I think if if we do, I think we need to find a way to experiment and try new things. Charter cities to me represents a great way to do it. So you. You can't, as it's like the, gate, the the complaining to your boss who has to complain to his boss, you know, making change that way is very difficult. 
So if you could find a plot of land uh, to set up your new rules and institutions, uh, then that then you get to try them out, and it would be opt in. So you're not you're not taking anything away from the old system. Some people who like being in that system can stay there. You're not trying to coerce them. Uh, and the, and then the people who want to come, they're doing so based on their consent. So in a sense, it's it's almost more democratic to me than just voting in elections. Because uh, if democracy is based on the consent of the governed, then what is the richest form of consent but immigration into some region? Uh, right. You know, it's like America is, is a nation of, of immigrants. And, and by, you know, people coming here, they're, they're willfully consenting to the Constitution um, in a much richer way than, you know, like me just being born here. I never... I never looked at the constitution and said, oh yeah, I, you know, this is a contract right. I, I want to sign. And, and so I think we can't, you know, one of the great movements in political philosophy could be to abandon this idea of the social contract, which but goes back to Locke and Hobbes, um, which was always a, uh, a hypothetical thought experiment. You know, what right. would people agree to exactly. if they lived in the state of nature and they wanted to form some bonds of cooperation, right? Well, this is a not a hypothetical social contract. It would be a real one, and, and people would say, yeah enter a charter city. And 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 the point for me, the, the great thing about that wouldn't necessarily be any particular charter city's rule set or constitution. It would be the fact that they're competing now with right. uh, with the old systems, and and therefore they'd have to improve in order to get people to stay. Uh, you'd start to see uh, some competitive forces at work, and maybe that would improve the quality of the the services in both nations or you know both city states in a way that that we don't see now. So yeah, I'm a big proponent of, of charter city idea. There are some other ideas, and in, in, Patrick Friedman, old friend of mine, I, I think he coined this phrase, just competitive governances. And, and seasteading is something that he was pursuing for a time. That's, you know, that's the wild idea that, okay, we have no more land for to try these new ideas out. So yeah. can we find a way to try, try them out at sea? Uh, that seemed wild and controversial in a way that I don't really understand because I, then we have Elon Musk saying, Hey, let's go to Mars and essentially do the same thing. Right. Uh, so why is this, you know, people are like, Oh, the sea is weird, but the moon the <laughs> Mars is amazing. Um, but that would be great too if we could get you know we could if we get to Mars uh, and then eventually develop it to some extent and and in the wildest uh, science fiction dreams terraform it then that would be a new frontier. Definitely, get to and do a kind of try new things and and by doing so, I think they would be able to improve our institutions here. Definitely. Do you think there's a there's a trade off between having like a hegemon and having um, a bunch of smaller competing states in terms of just like aggregate violence, like maybe it's, or, or is it just something like, well, we've had this kind of peace for a while because we burned so hot in world war one and world war two. And that's right. why things have been, do you think there's a trade-off there? It used to be like in Europe, you know, they'd have these small wars all the time. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, that's a great question. And I'm not quite sure how to answer it other than to say my reflex is to say multiple competing nations, city states and so on is, is better, even if there are small skirmishes uh, and Got battles, it. than the risk of global 
catastrophe or 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 a totalitarian one state order right that makes sense um, one of the it's fascinating to me that and that the but that the new testament touches on this oh yeah really yeah so i'm I, I am by no means a biblical scholar uh but i am a fan of dostoevsky and in the brothers karamazov in in the famous chapter about the grand inquisitor there's this discussion about the time jesus spent in the wild in the wilderness sometimes it's described as the desert in my king, king james bible it's the wilderness and, and so jesus is tempted three times by the devil um essentially the devil's like hey you know you're you're god or you know you're part of god and powerful why don't you just do these three things and make it easy for man and one of them the, the most famous temptation is you know turn this stone into bread because what you know the world is full of suffering and hunger how can you stand by and watch these people suffer and die of famine when you could turn this stone into bread and that's a that's a wonderful challenge to any religion right yep. and, and and the famous response is man does not live by bread alone right um so it's that's the first temptation the i i forget which order they're in whether it's the second or third but one of them is related to this question which is that the devil satan says why don't you unite all the world in one peaceful government right and jesus declined he said and and i forget his exact words but it's something like you know that won't work right. <laughs> um so it's interesting to me that um in essence the project of the of satan is to establish one world government <laughs> and the, the, christian, strong, strong the true here. christian response is to be uh wary of that i don't know fascinating uh to ponder but uh but there is something to be said in, in the historical record where uh you look at large names i think china i forget the name of the dynasty but they were at their technological peak uh probably around 1500 um they had these they they had the printing they, they could print on paper gunpowder they had these large ocean going vessels that could travel from china to africa and uh and then i forget which emperor died and something happened and and, and the next guy was just a luddite and <laughs> banned all new technology and the use of these things and and because the country was so large and the rules so expansive those prohibitions just flattened out everything and, and progress died in, in asia um, whereas by contrast in europe uh, all these multiple com competing kingdoms at war with each other uh, if something was invented in Italy, uh, you know, and then and then banned, uh, but you know there was some use to it. Maybe the King of France sponsors that person to come. This happened with Da Vinci, for example. That guy was like this mercenary who was hired by different kings to do different things. Um, but that drove progress for a long time. So I think there is something to be said for these multiple competing jurisdictions and, and kingdoms and nations that helps uh, drive progress through through some kind of competitive nature i think that I, I, I don't know it's a great question though is like uh you know the one worlders if you're right. like for example what's his name robert wright robert wright yes a book he wrote called non-zero which is this take on history about how we you know the past is zero sum uh the future is positive sum and that was the lesson learned over time uh he makes an argument in a chapter for one world government 
And his, his arguments are probably familiar. It's, it's something like, hey, with a pandemic or with threat of nuclear war or environmental catastrophe, global warming, it seems to be the case that just as in tribes and in uh, cities and nations, we figured out ways of cooperating with each other to solve these problems, it, it, it seems as though now we're at the precipice of global cooperation. And so we should just accept a one world order. Um, but I, I'm afraid my, my reflexes are to say uh, that's so dangerous. You know, maybe it's good for 10 years, but eventually the uh, some of those forces that we described earlier, the sclerosis, the bureaucracy, that's one part of it. But then there's the worst part, which would be totalitarian domination. Right. There's no exit. There's no yeah. exit to you. And that could prove very, that, 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 that's almost an existential threat, I think, on, on par with, you know, volcanic eruptions and asteroid hits. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a great Bertrand Russell essay where he talks about uh, the future and he's like, well, by 2000, you know, we've got like three options. It's like, we're going to be extinct. It's going to be one world governance or like, we're all going to be at war all the time. Yeah. Just like, that just, just doesn't intuitively make sense to me that that's, it's stable to have this one huge world government. Oh yeah, right. That the three kind, that the three nations were at war, <laughs> pretend war or war. Yeah, I can't remember like, the plot. I should reread that. But um, yeah, I, I and I think there's something on on the you know separate from just like science and tech. I think it's even tied to the arts and literature and and it's you you need a Galapagos like effect where you're isolated enough that you're able to experiment and, and try out different things, uh, but not so cut off that you don't, you're not aware of some improvements in other places. Right. So you look at the um, development, the discovery and development of quantum mechanics, I think is interesting because it was like all these different European guys. And yet they all had a different flavor and style to their thought. So like Fermi as an Italian was a different type of thinker from uh, von Neumann, who right. was from Hungary, right? And then that's interesting to me is even in the hardest sciences, uh, you get a little bit of different style and flavor and approach based on having been grown up in a different place. Right. Um, so yeah, I think there's a good reason for, for our differences and, and maybe nations uh, are a good way to preserve that. It does seem like things have shifted though. Like since, you know, you're talking about these physicists having these, these different outlooks, things have seemed to have gotten much more universalized across countries. So I remember going to London a couple of years ago and, you know, like, man, this is much, it has much more in common with the Metro pools here. Like even in Durham, North Carolina has a lot yeah. more in common with London than with like my hometown. Like there's yeah. a part of their cultural divide, even in Shanghai, I felt this like, I don't know. It, it's very. It's a great bizarre. observation. I thought that yeah, I I have friends in London or Paris who feel closer to me, in terms of just the novels you read, the movies you see, right. and quote the, uh, the sorts of concerns in your life about career, the organizations you work for, and so on. It's just so similar, so much so that yeah, it feels like it, when you meet someone who uh, lives in in rural America somewhere, it, it it's almost like a, a different country. It's it's very bizarre. Uh, another quote here. I think yeah. this is a good point. So surveying our system of higher education as an antagonist, I've come to see that even though there are some 5,000 universities and colleges in the U.S., there's only one point of view on every campus. 
And as a single standard for right and wrong gushes out like an oil spill with every graduating class, the careers of the elite, McKinsey or Goldman Sachs, and their expensive playgrounds, San Francisco or New York, have swelled with risk-loathing conformists. <laughs> I, I I really enjoyed this. I, I wrote this uh, very short essay um, yeah. for my university and they actually, they edited out McKinsey and like changed it to something like very, cause they were afraid that the recruiters would go away and wouldn't come because I was, I was mad that all our talented people were going to work in management consulting and finance and not building things. Um, but what do you think about this? Like what's to be done? Like how do you inspire people to, to drop out and pursue and, and actually build something? Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know the causes of that issue. Is it the case that because all these industries were banned that, uh, you know, people can no longer work in them. So therefore they're not exciting. So think about uh, nuclear engineering as, as a career right. path. Um, hopefully that changes, but the last 20, 30 years, it's, 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 it's been slow going just because it's so hard to build nu- nuclear plants. Um, it's a challenge. So, so it could be the case that these, these things were just banned outright and people couldn't take those jobs. So the only possible. jobs they took were in the, the paper-based world of finance and, uh, and management consulting. But on the other hand, um, I, th- I think people are risk averse and, and they very much are imitative. And so because these great fortunes in their eyes were made, maybe not even not so great, it could just be like a million dollars, which sounds, pr- I mean, that's a lot of money, but uh, it's enough if you're you know, 20, 21, you might be impressionable. And, uh, and therefore, you, know, you take that career path um, and it's just so visible. So Wall Street's just so visible and it's gained so much importance in the last 30 years that, that, that it's drawing people in. I don't know. I don't know what to do about it. Because <laughs> uh, outside of like, hey, maybe there are these industries like like nuclear power, where if right. we we you know loosen up the regulatory constraints and we get building again, um, that could be exciting. But uh, otherwise, it's just like the money's too good. The entry points are too clear. You know, they, they have, like you just mentioned, it's like the Goldman Sachs and McKinsey have the money to pay career services to host the, the job fair. Um, there's an application process that resembles college. It's competitive. And then from the, the student's point of view or the, the new hire, these jobs seem to maintain optionality for people. They get to, they get to keep alive the sense that life is full of, of, possibilities in the future. I'm not quite sure what it's going to be, but don't worry down the road. Then I'll start my company. Then I'll write my novel right. Then I'll sing my song. I don't know what, but uh, people like preserving that, that feeling that they'll have the option to do it later. And, and those careers seem to provide that for people in their twenties. Maybe, maybe it's just to go on the business school or, or law school. Right. Um, and because of that, I, what I think though, the trick is that they, they, they think they're going to get the optionality, but as they get into their 20s, now they're making $200,000 a year or more. They've got uh, a spouse, they've got a pet, they've got a house with a mortgage. And, and then it just becomes too hard to take any risks at all because you've got all these other commitments that, that you have to give priority to. And, and, and by that time, your 20s are over, you're into the 30s. So that, that, that's something that's really pernicious. And, um, uh, you know, outside of, of trying to show that there are other rewarding and fulfilling careers, I, I don't know what to do about it. If you have ideas, I'd love to hear them. It's, 
it, it's really interesting. I heard uh, through like an acquaintance, like a friend of a friend, that one of the things you guys would talk about at the Fifth Deal Fellowship was um, like they they bring somebody in and just beat them with you have to learn how to be happy on like fifty k a year. Yeah, like, just so like you can maintain that flexibility to actually go out and build something because if you get the golden handcuffs, you're attached right. to the 220k a year or whatever in the BMW, you could never. I mean, escape. maybe that would be a good piece of advice to people. <laughs> so like, even if you're making, if you make 150k, put away 75k. Don't even look at it as your personal, exactly. and that'll be your personal runway. If you add it up after a couple of years, you, you'll be that's like your own angel round. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you, you can kind of escape. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really crazy problem and it's so, it's difficult to even comprehend what to do about it. Um, another quote, I really like this to save the West. We must return to its roots. There's more to the West than Rome. We must return to London, Athens, and Jerusalem. What do you mean, uh, by there's more to the West than Rome and and what are these and and what must we return to? Yeah, I, I became interested in the West as a concept, uh, just because I started to, I mean, for one thing, it's always in the in, in politics, especially uh, from coming from conservatives, like, oh, we're losing our sense of the West. And I, I had taken a vacation to Paris. Um, I, th- I think I was standing in line to get into the Louvre and it just, and it, and it occurred to me that a lot of the architecture in France in particular um, is, is very Roman in its, uh, in its gestures and style. Uh, and, and, and Napoleon, when you look at, and I saw some paintings inside the Louvre of Napoleon, and he very much adopted the, the Roman uh, emperor vibe. <laughs> um, Definitely. So it, it, I was like, wow, what, what is this? What, why is it so much Roman influence? And then and and thinking about what Rome meant as empire, as securing peace within a territory over a long, a, a long period of time in a long, uh, you know, geographic dimensions um I, th- I thought well you know what that's that's just one part of the story of, of the west um you know there the west is comprised of different different things that make it great and and so that's that's why i started to use these ideas of cities to to think about it differently and, and it just felt like yeah whenever people talked about the west it felt more like this roman concept of 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 maintaining a perimeter on an empire and securing peace within uh, but I think other things are important, like the arts or uh, like yeah, science and technology or, uh, or just, you know, the average living standards of, uh, you know, a man on the street. So um, that uh, so I started to dig into that. And, and what, it, what I thought was interesting is, yeah, what, what makes the West great? So London, uh, if you compare <laughs> compared to the law in, in, in the rest of Europe, the civil code, the common law is just more conducive to to business and uh, and making agreements, you know, contract, torts, property. Uh, the common law just handles these things in a way that that are better for for everyone's well being than even the civil code of France, and which is tied to Roman law, uh, goes back that far. And so the common law, and you can do institutional comparative analysis of like. Uh, you know, former colonial possessions and the ones that were under British rule are faring better than the ones that were under French or Spanish rule. Uh, North and South America is another example. And so, you know, as an operating system at, at the foundational level of society, the common law is just very powerful. And, and, and it is the root of our classical liberalism. 
of, of you know, adults making agreements with each other, exchanging goods and services. Uh, so I thought we shouldn't lose fact, you know, we shouldn't lose that ideal in, in the form of a symbol. And to me, that felt like London, Athens, uh, you know, Rome versus, you know, Athens, ancient Greece is not ancient Rome. These are two different places. And, and Greece, uh, Greece was very innovative and, uh, and, and it was in part driven by some of the, the forces we've described. They were not a nation in, in our sense of the term. They were a loose confederation of competing city-states. And uh, that competition fell, you know, started to drive these engines of progress in the arts, drama. So we, in ancient Greece, we saw the development of, of tragedy and comedy. We saw the, uh, you know, the, the, the first strong development of philosophy. It went from you know, these bizarre uh, <laughs> the sayings of Heraclitus that I love, right. you know, very enigmatic to these discourses on, on politics and justice and, and, and you know, the good, the true, and, and, and the beautiful. Um, and you saw the development of mathematics, um, astronomy. And so, so Greece, just phenomenal advances in science, our ideas that theory is a Greek word, this idea that the truth is independent of the human mind, um, and that, you know, what are the attributes of this truth? It is true for you, it is true for me, it's universal, uh, it, it is true for all time. It, you know, if we discover something about the universe today, and it's, tr it's true uh, model of, of how it works, then that will be true here, it'll be true in Alpha Centauri, and it'll be true in a billion years. Um, and so that, that sort of understanding of, of knowledge uh, comes out of Greece, and, and we shouldn't forget that, which is not Roman. Um, and, then, and then the last thing, uh, which is interesting to, like my, my, my upbringing, because I studied the classics, um, you know, it's like my Bible is Homer, and I've got, uh, you know, I've got Homeric poetry tattooed on me so but, nice. but it, it, all of which to say is like my my emphasis tends to be that way so I'm not as as when I'm, I'm not as, as knowledgeable about the judeo-christian influence in the west uh but uh but it's powerful and uh one of the things that I think comes out in in those stories is a different notion of the truth that is different from the the greek idea of truth that is universal, true for all time, absolute. And with the, um, the truths of revelation, you know, you look at people from Abraham all the way up to Jesus, uh, there are people who had a private truth that was true for them in some very profound and deep way um, that only they believed it, that their conscience adhered to. And, uh, and then they went against the crowd in some fashion. Um, because that was true for them. And, and with the, the, the story of Jesus's life, it's like time is different as well. So, you know, the Greeks view of time was cyclical, this never ending right. cycle. Um, but with the advent of Christianity, suddenly you have a definite point of time, you know, this and going back to uh, Judaism, you have a covenant with God. Right. You know, is, you know, a compact that holds between a, a specific group of people in a specific time and place. Um, so that 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 sort of tension. Leo Strauss is the uh, he, he famously talked about he, he characterized these as cities. So he, he, he characterized this as like uh, 
you know, Jerusalem versus Athens, this, this tension here. But, but I, you know, the, the, the truth of the West is that a lot of the creativity we have as a civilization is, is from the energy generated by these two polarities, or, and, and I'm characterizing it as, as like four. So it's not that any one of them is true, and oftentimes there's tension and conflict between them, but it's that tension, I think, that can drive creativity and progress. So I wrote an essay about that. Um, and it was interesting because, yeah, I was surprised people actually read it. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I still go back every, every so often because whenever, whenever you hear a politician talk about the West, uh, it, I, it immediately comes to mind uh, Roman Empire and, right. and, 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 and now American Empire. Uh, and, and what they don't refer to are some of these other things that are very important. It's definitely come to dominate. Um, so that's a great segue. Are you up for a round of overrated and underrated? Do you know? What yeah, let's is? do it. Okay, cool. So just give me a sentence. Uh, overrated, underrated, maybe a sentence of of why. Um, so Strauss, overrated or underrated? You just mentioned him. I think he's overrated nowadays. <laughs> gotcha. My one sentence take on that is um, the the whole idea of uh, esoteric writing. Is, is kind of fascinating because suddenly you get to look at these old texts and say, well, maybe there are secrets within here. Plato right. wasn't, when Plato really banished the poets, did he really ban mean that? Or was he saying right. something else? It, it adds a new dimension to interpretation that I think can be valuable, but taken to its extreme, suddenly now we have the careerist mandarins who are <laughs> afraid to say anything in public. And so everything has to be read between the lines. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so in that sense, uh, maybe Strauss is overrated. I also don't, it's like not enough, people love to talk about the esoteric writing, but what did, what did Strauss really argue for when it comes to the, you know, a just political regime? I don't know if he has clear enough answers on that. I'm not a scholar. I've only read some Strauss, but I'd it's like, what, what is the, the vision of the future that Strauss had? Um, you know, I'd love to, to learn more about that but it's not discussed. So that's why I say overrated. Got it. That's, that's well put. Um, Tom Wolf, overrated or underrated? Way underrated. <laughs> He's, he wrote some good stuff. He wrote some yeah, really good stuff. I, I think he, and by way underrated, I mean, as, as seen through the eyes of New York publishers <laughs> and editors and, and academics <laughs> and, and even uh, other writers of his era, uh, he was just enormous. He was just wild. He was just so funny. He was, he, his style was innovative at the time. Now every teenager texts the way Tom Wolf writes, <laughs> all exclamation points. But if you, if you go back to when he started out, uh, the, the dominant influence and voice in American literature were, was Hemingway in terms of style. Right. Uh, and, and in Hemingway, Hemingway himself was very innovative in that he developed this really crisp, um, lucid, clear style that, that you, you recognize immediately and can be parodied, right? It's like, we were walking on the green grass <laughs> and it was cold and wet and Pablo was with us. You know, it's like, <laughs> so coming from that, suddenly Wolf went in the other direction and you get these ornate, you know, sentences with exclamation points and ellipses and dashes and, and and i think he was reacting to what he was coming from so uh i to me so he's a stylistic innovator uh he was a a innovator of genre he really developed the the you know nonfiction, literary nonfiction, fiction you know books 
nonfiction books that read like novels. Right. And, uh, and then when he switched to writing novels with the bonfire of the vanities, I, that's probably the last great American novel yeah. where, and by that, I mean, it's a novel that touches on the issues of the day. Um, it, uh, was something that everyone wi- widely discussed, you know, not just academics or not just effect, some effect literary group. Right. It was like all of America was discussing his novel and, um, and it really touched people. Um, and made them laugh or, you know, made them think about things differently. And so to me, it's, it's, I think it only because he was conservative, not, he, I, I don't know who he voted for. He seems to like, he seemed to lean Republican at times, but uh, I think because of that, he was uh, never really praised by his peers. And so to me, it's quite sad that he never won the Nobel prize. If you look at a book like the, the, the right stuff. I think this yeah. is one of the great works of American literature. It's, it's, it's really a bummer. Yeah, it's crazy. So, all right, that's my Wolf spiel. No, I love that. I love that. He was an inspiration to you too, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, God, you're so naive when you're 18, 19. <laughs> I, I, I opened up the back page of The Bonfire of the Vanities and there's that little picture of the author and a paragraph bio and, and the fact that it said he had a PhD in American Studies from Yale I I'd, I'd laughed my ass off through that book and it's such a wicked satire. I thought to myself, oh, if I want to write like Tom Wolfe, I need a PhD. Ready to go. <laughs> From Yale in English literature. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, influence on that way practically, but but also just, I, I love his uh, foresight. It's almost, he's almost just too prescient. Yes. And and so we're, we're still living in the bonfire of the vanities. Whenever you see these celebrity trials or scandal trials and and the press acting one way and, and crazy politicians doing something else. You just, you have to shake your head and say, holy shit, we're in a Tom Wolf novel. That's great. I, I love that. Uh, Von Neumann, overrated, underrated? Ooh, I think he's underrated because not everyone knows who he is. Uh, but, from, you know, among physicists and mathematicians, people uh, in those circles, Von Neumann, I think is, a, is rightly regarded as one of the greats. But to me, it's sad that most of America d- doesn't know who he is. He was just this extraordinary polymath, uh, made major contributions and invented whole new fields like game theory. Um, also uh, impressive, impressively practical in his um, later years from, from helping out with the trigger on the atomic bomb to uh, inventing co- the the still the, the computer architecture that we use today. I, 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 so he was a, I, I believe he was the second hire at the Institute for Advanced Study. Which oh, wow. Is the, the, the pinnacle of, of, of geekdom. You know, it was, awesome. it was, it was the, the, their first hire was Einstein. And, uh, and von Neumann was a, was a member for many years and, and you get to the Second World War and all of a sudden he has this idea. He, he says, I'm not thinking about bombs. I'm thinking about computers. Right. <laughs> and he, he, had, uh, he had crossed paths with the people working on ENIAC at uh, Penn. And so he, want, he, he had a different architecture in mind. He wanted to build and, and, I, and he applied for money and space to do it with Oppenheimer because he was the head of the institute at the Institute at the time. And it was this huge controversy because it was supposed to be this, this Olympus of, of theory where no one moved a thing. <laughs> and now you have von Neumann wanting to like build a garage so he can make some newfangled thing called a computer. 
they gave him the money and they did it, but it was like such a racket that they had to move out. I don't know. It's just this great story about practice versus theory to me. Um, but yeah, so I think he's way underrated, just a fascinating mind. And yeah. then the other thing that, that he's a part of that I wish more people knew about was uh, he and a, a small group of people uh, from you know, pretty much the same neighborhood in Budapest. Yeah, what was in the water in Budapest in 19... Yeah, I don't know, but this small group of people made incredible advances in science (laughs) in a short amount of time, just, you know, these very impressive contributions. People like uh, Edward Edward Teller eventually on on the hydrogen bomb. Uh, Von, man, I'm going to mix up names, but Leo Szilard, who's uh, another physicist who conceived of a way to split the atom. Uh, They they were all known collectively as the Martians because uh, they had these thick Hungarian accents. And and, yeah, people like von Neumann could multiply something like seven digit numbers in his head in half a second. And and so people thought, no, the only way these people, (laughs) the the Martians are here and they're they're actually from Hungary. Um, So I'd love, yeah, I'd love to know what was in the water in in that time why how did these people learn how did they come to to think how to think uh because they were just so creative in a short period of time uh and, and maybe there's some lessons we can learn from that, that that we haven't really drawn yet because no one's really done a, a good study of that definitely worth checking into so one more yeah present age by kierkegaard overrated underrated uh underrated <laughs> it's got to be a, a i should have no time to think you just gotta <laughs> just spit it out um i think uh i think that book is underrated because it's short it's crisp it's a little it's it's much clearer than kierkegaard's other writing so i it's a great entryway into his his way of thinking and uh and it's underrated because it hits on some of these themes we've been talking about um, he, Kierkegaard, on, I believe on his gravestone, it says something like, here lies an individual. And, and the emphasis is on individual because uh, in, in the present age, he talks about this leveling phenomenon. Leveling to him meant you know, eliminating all the differences between ourselves so that we were all the same. Um, and he was so sensitive to that issue in, in such a painful way at times. Um, but I think we're all rewarded by, by what he went through in order to pursue his life as an individual. Um, I, I, I'd also recommend the book Fear and Trembling, um, which is a just astonishing, wonderful book about the Abraham story. And, oh, wow. cool. uh, you know, and, and, and it goes back to Plato as well. So in the famous Euthyphro dialogue, you know, the question at hand is, is something good because God loves it or does God love it because it's good? Um, and, and Kierkegaard takes his crack at it in, the, in that book and, and very much comes down on the side of it's good because God commands it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's not a view you're going to hear today too often. <laughs> nope. <laughs> but it ties to, I think that's related to being an individual because it goes back to that idea that in your conscience, maybe you have some calling something you can't explain an intuitive awareness that and and it's unintelligible to others you can't give reasons to explain it why you're doing it but because you have some inner faith about what you're doing you you pursue it and and that i think is is something we should all try to inculcate to some degree in ourselves 
Well put. Michael, uh, where can people find you and do you have any parting thoughts? Uh, you can find me at William Blake on nice. Twitter, at William underscore Blake. Uh, I, I was a tech journalist, as I mentioned, and I guess this was 2006 or seven, and, and Twitter had just formed. Uh, and maybe a month later, we were covering it. And uh, so I signed up to the service and I thought, what is this, like something for haikus? <laughs> uh, so I, I, my username was that of a poet. I, I love William Blake. Um, definitely check out his book, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Um, but yeah, this, so that's my Twitter handle. It's not because I'm a, a weird pseudonym. I've just kept it. Um, you can find me at my fund's website. We have a, a form anyone can fill out if you're interested in pursuing ideas uh, that, that might make for good companies. Uh, we work with a lot of makers, hackers, and builders. So if you're looking to you know, find like-minded people to work on things, definitely reach out over our contact form. And then uh, I'm just out and about in the world and uh, at large. So, uh, you know, check me out. Uh, sometimes I write stories for City Journal, National Review. Uh, so, I'm, you know, maybe you'll see me there. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Okay. Thanks for having me so much. I really Absolutely. enjoyed it. Take care. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 